Good morning. Today's scripture can be found in the book of Acts, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called the Beautiful Gate so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked them for alms. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Stand up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Jumping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. All the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who used to sit and ask for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Body. Uh, my name is Pastor John Jay. I'm the lead pastor here at First Baptist Pasadena. And uh, I'm thrilled to be with you. Happy Father's Day. Uh, let me add that to uh, Grant's welcome. And then let me just say for a second uh, that I just got a massage. So um, I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> I'm going to open up uh, the time for you if you would like to go grab a massage, all the guys here. Seriously, though, I know that Grant mentioned this. Uh, when we do this for the for the women in our church on Mother's Day, I, I thought two years ago, this is my two-year anniversary being the pastor here. And uh, <clears throat> I did not. I thought, like, we're going to have to convince all of these ladies to go get a massage in the middle of worship. This is going to be so strange. And you don't. They just, like, run back there and sign up on a list. No one has to say anything twice. You just kind of know. Guys, I've already asked, like, ten of you today if you're going to go get a massage. And all of you look at me like I just asked you to, I don't know, like, wear a Speedo at a public pool or something. <laughs> Which is also something you shouldn't be ashamed of. But, seriously, uh, there, it's... You know, there's something about being vulnerable as a guy that's maybe harder for us. And it's a good exercise. Also, I'll say that we talk a lot about embodied worship and sort of settling into our physical selves. And so much of worship on Sundays often is a really cerebral activity. And a lot of what we're about to do is uh, speaking and listening and watching, and you're just going to be sitting. Uh, but worship is also all of our bodies. And you've done that with singing already today. And you've done that with, uh, for some of you, standing and raising your hands. And for, uh, for the guys this morning, we really do invite. And uh, we're happy that we can share this with you. So this morning we're going to look at acts chapter 3 we are in the middle of we're kind of at the beginning of a teaching focus through the book of acts and uh, i'm i'm super thrilled i want to start this morning though with a uh with just a story about my week so 
my family was really fortunate that we were able to spend about five days uh, in and around Yosemite. And I'd never been to that part of the country. You you know, I'm from New Orleans, from the south. And in the south, we don't have anything like what you have out here. We have swamp and then we have pine trees. And that's the end of the story. We also have alligators. But none of that is the kind of nature you like really bask in. And... So I thought like, you know, the mountains here just to the north uh, are amazing, but that's nothing like Yosemite. Who has been to Yosemite in the room? Uh, okay, if you didn't raise your hands and you're able to drive four hours north, then you should go do it. That, I'm, I'm probably the first person that's told you that, right? That Yosemite is a really beautiful place. So I'm glad that I could share that information with you. Uh, so this is the view uh, coming into the valley. Our second or third day there, we actually went into the valley. The first day, we went up to the big tree grove, Mariposa Grove, and hiked to the top. Um, but the second day, we went in the valley, and there's a tunnel. You're already kind of in this wondrous space, but there's this tunnel. And then when you come out of the tunnel, there's a little parking area and a viewing area, which apparently is where uh, everybody goes to take selfies of themselves at the mountain. Uh, and I spent most of the time I was there taking pictures of people taking pictures, uh, but there's this view, and it's it's amazing, right? One of the things that I realized, and I was reading a book this week while I was gone about seeing, uh, called The Object Looks Back. And it's this, it's this book by this art professor about what it means to look, to have a gaze, especially upon objects of art, and then what happens a two-year vision in that process and the way that looking is kind of a two-directional endeavor that as you look upon something you are also sort of being observed this is true of the way that we look at one another and there's this thing that happens on vacation especially for me and for a lot of you I'm sure you don't have to go to Yosemite uh, to figure this out you can just get out of your regular routine uh, it's called the holiday paradox and I didn't know that this was a thing until I was there turns out the holiday paradox is very simply we just sort of experience time in two very distinct ways. Either as rhythmic time, where you sort of, you wake up, you have uh, maybe a similar, the same thing for breakfast, you do the same set of activities, you drive the same route to work or to whatever you're doing that day, you come home at the same time, there is this pattern that becomes kind of the like backbeat to your life. And there's that kind of time. And then the other kind of time is when that gets interrupted with some like moment that is new, that is unexpected. Maybe you got a promotion that day and that doesn't happen every day. Or maybe you saw a really bad accident on the way to work and that's not a thing you normally see. It kind of moves you into a different kind of time. But on vacation, those two senses of time become blurred because everything is new and everything is different. And because everything is new and different and novel, you can't really get your bearings. You get overwhelmed and flooded and you experience time as this bit of a paradox. Uh, that's how it was for me. That's how it always is for me on, uh, we call it vacation. Folks across the pond call it holiday. The other language that we might use for this is recreation. Because that's what a lot of us do on vacation. Uh, the word recreation comes from re-creation. To be born again. And there's something about getting away from your regular life that does that. You, again, you don't have to travel four hours. You can simply step outside in a new direction and just pay attention to enter into this space. But the holiday paradox is this. Uh, so I'm thinking to myself that I'm seeing this world in a new way. And uh, do y'all know what this mountain is? Yeah, El Cap. Uh, 
made famous, if you're not from this area, by the new documentary that won Best Picture, Free Solo, which is also amazing. Uh, so when you're driving through the valley, you see this. And this was one of the things I was really excited to see. Uh, and so I kind of trained my vision to find it. When you drive into the valley, that's what it is right there. And then when we drove around it, we're sort of right beside it. And all I wanted to do was get really close and see what I could see of this thing. And I'm thinking, like, I'm sitting here beholding it. And I told Corey, my wife, I said, wouldn't it be amazing if we had been here whenever Alex, the guy who climbed this mountain without ropes, oh my goodness, uh, if, when he was climbing it, because I'd read uh, stories over the months that when people would travel to Yosemite, they would try to catch a sighting of him practicing or even doing his climb. And I thought it would be amazing if we had seen that. But we have this mountain, and this is amazing. I was looking uh, for the mountain, but there was a lot of things I didn't see. So <laughs> I, uh, I got back home and then back to our room, and a couple of nights later, I decided to do a little bit of reading about the mountain and the different climbing routes. It turns out that there was, on the day we were there, which is Wednesday, the youngest person ever climbed the nose of El Cap, this 10-year-old girl from Colorado named Selah. She was somewhere around where that arrow is pointing when we were there. I'm sitting there lamenting the fact that I didn't get to see this person who climbed it solo, and there's the youngest person ever on the... Now, granted, it's very high, and she was very small, and there was no way that I was going to see her, even if I knew that she was there. But I wasn't looking for her. And so there's no way that I was going to see her. Today, this morning, we're going to talk about vision and about what it means to expect something when we look and how that changes the way that we understand and apprehend the world. There's this quote that I came across recently. Expectation is the cousin of attention. This morning we're going to talk about attention. Uh, but expectation is a big part of that. I expected to be overwhelmed by these mountains in the valley. But I did not expect to see a 10-year-old girl climbing this mountain on that day. So I didn't see it. I didn't even know to look for it. Someone had told me, listen, there is this 10-year-old named Salah, and she's on the mountain. She's been on the mountain for four days, and she's almost to the top. When you get into the valley, she's going to be somewhere around this spot. And if you can grab a pair of binoculars, you'll see her. I definitely would have found her, because I would have been looking for her. But I wasn't looking for her. This morning, as we look in the book of Acts, we're going to see something like this. Expectations that reset people's attention in the way that they see the world. This whole series of acts I've been telling our staff and leaders uh, that it demands of us a certain sense of expectation that God is present. The book of Acts is driven by what we would say is the Holy Spirit, God's present in our midst. Because of that, there is this sense of swelling expectation in the book that something is happening, that something has happened and is driving the future in a new direction. So expectation is the cousin of attention. That's what I want you to talk about and focus on today. Now, this quote comes from a book that I do want to recommend to you. Uh, let's go to the next one, Jason. It's this book by uh, Horowitz called On Looking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. And uh, I'm about, I've got a copy in the mail coming to me, but I've read uh, several excerpts from this book and synopsis, and it's... Uh, it comes highly, highly recommended. But here's what the book is about. Uh, this woman, she lives in, in an urban environment very similar to this one. And she uh, has been writing these books about the ways that dogs 
inhabit the world, the way they see, the way they smell, this sort of deep dive into a different way of being in the world physically. And she decides she wants to take a walk around the block where she lives. And she wants to take this walk intentionally. I do this all the time here, by the way, the block that sort of circles this church to see what I see. And I've gotten pretty used to the familiar sights. So when something is unfamiliar, it kind of sparks me and it sends me in a new direction. So what she does is she takes this block walk uh, with her dog to start to kind of pay attention to what her dog is noticing, but then with 11 experts in different fields, like a geologist, an artist, uh, a physician she takes, and each of them show her what she's not seeing on that walk. It's brilliant. She takes a toddler and watches how the toddler interacts. And like, right, kids are down at this level so they can see things you don't see. Like my son Judah, who's now almost as tall as me. But when you were younger, you would always find stuff on the ground that I just didn't even know was there because I wasn't as close to it. Uh, She takes these walks with folks. She ends up taking one walk uh, with somebody who who is blind. And she says that she enters into a sensory world that opens up her understanding in a way that her vision was actually impairing. Uh, I want to show you a quote from it. This is the, the person who walked with her who was blind and says, uh, they're in front of her building and she turned to shake my hand. Nice to see you, she said. And then as if noticing my smile and response, she added, there's someone in my building who asked me, how can you use that word see? So this is a person who's blind, nice to see you. How can you use that word see? How can you say I see it? Well, I do see it, she says. See has many definitions. It's sort of like the thesis statement for the book. To see has many definitions. We think we see the world in a certain way. But this encounter that these early followers of Jesus have with the resurrected Christ and with the Spirit, it really changes the way that they understand sight. So, let's open. Acts chapter 3. You heard the reading from Bill. Peter and John, they're going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and a man lame from birth was carried in. People would lay him daily at the gate of the temple called Beautiful so that he could ask for alms from those entering the temple. Just let me set the ground for you for just a moment. Uh, This is an incredibly ordinary, quotidian sort of encounter. This person who's been uh, lame from birth, who's been crippled from birth, is always here. And he's exactly where he's supposed to be. He's right at the outside of the temple. And so as you would be going into worship, you would encounter this person and you would give them some amount of, of offering, a gift, financial maybe food. This is actually still a pretty common practice. Uh, my drive in to church uh, is just north of the 210, and I pass Lake Avenue Church, and there is often a guy at the corner of Lake Avenue on Sunday mornings who's there and uh, is, has his hand out waiting for someone to offer something. This is a tradition we still carry on, this kind of almsgiving. And so he's there. He's where he's supposed to be. And Peter and John encounter him. The reason he's there and not inside is because the tradition dictates that this is where he's supposed to stand or supposed to sit or supposed to be. There are certain people who are not allowed inside the temple for all of these different reasons. And we don't have quite enough time today to talk about it, but I'll just show you where it is in the text. Uh, Leviticus 21 talks about who is and who isn't allowed inside the gates and then the inner courts and the holy holies of the temple. And one of the folks who's not allowed in 
uh, are folks who have certain kinds of physical disabilities. And part of the reason is there's this understanding of what's sacred and what is profane. And profane does not exactly mean bad. It just means distinct or different or set apart uh, in the same way that sacred means that. And so the world sort of gets divided up so you can begin to understand uh, and then categorize where you fall on that spectrum. And this person, this man outside the beautiful gate, uh, he's where he can go and no further. Now, there's a problem, though, with this story, and that's that the theology present underneath his presence is complicated because lameness, a physical disability in that time, was understood as you did something wrong. Sin is the way that they would talk about it in the Bible. Do you remember there was a guy who couldn't see? And uh, and in the New Testament, in one of the Gospels, they asked Jesus, like, what's the reason for this person's disability? Is it because his parents sinned? Who sinned here? And Jesus says, that's not how this story goes anymore. You're, you're seeing the world wrong. Uh, there's something happening here that you're not understanding. This presents us with that kind of problem. This person was disabled from birth. Whose fault is this? So then there is another question that arises. If his lameness isn't from sin, then what's his purpose? What's the reason for his presence in the world? What does he offer to us as the viewers? How are we supposed to see him? And what does he offer to Peter and John? What's his use or his utility? Well, it turns out that tradition has an answer for that too. When we're presented with what we would call like a complexity of theology, why do good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people? Maybe that's like the question Job asks. Yeah, we call it theodicy in, uh, in seminary. We have to come up with reasons, with meaning. This is what we do. We seek out order and comprehension. So what's the purpose of this person at the gate called beautiful? Well, the tradition has an answer. Uh, and it's found in between the Testaments. We're not from, does anyone know the book of Tobit? Raise hands. Okay, I'm seeing folks who've, yeah, who've maybe been to, somebody's kind of waving, maybe, maybe. Uh, it's, if you have a Bible that has something called like the Apocryphal, the intertestamental books, it would be like right in the middle of the Old and the New Testament. These are the books that were written often uh, in between the time that we would call like the late prophets and then when the gospels show up. Uh, this is a lot of like wisdom literature. It's a lot of folklore out of Judaism. And this book Tobit, uh, in the fourth chapter particularly, is just this bit of wisdom. Uh, father passing down wisdom to his son. So I want to read for you this passage. It's about almsgiving. And this begins to explain what that guy is doing at the gate called Beautiful. The dad says to the son, this is Tobit to Tobias. Every day of your life, keep the Lord your God in mind. Never sin deliberately or disobey any of his commands. Always do what's right and never get involved in anything evil. Be honest and you will succeed in whatever you do. You can already hear what we would call like an act consequence model of the world. If you do good, then good will happen to you. It's a very kind of elemental understanding of the universe. Karma is another way that we might talk about it. And it is present in all kinds of religions. It's an old, old idea. And then he starts to talk about alms. Give generously to anyone who faithfully obeys God. If you are stingy in giving to the poor, God will be stingy in giving to you. Give according to what you have. The more you have, the more you should give. Even if you have only a little, be sure to give something. This is as good as money saved. You will have your reward in the time of trouble. Taking care of the poor 
is the kind of offering that pleases God in heaven. Do this and you will be kept safe from the dark world of the dead. Oh. Okay. This develops over time, and I actually think a lot of us, including myself, carry around a version of this. Uh, there are jokes if you grew up in church about, like, you do enough good deeds and you get, like, jewels in your crown in heaven. Do you remember hearing those kinds of statements? Or, like, you get an extra room in the mansion in the sky? Uh, I re- <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, I, again, I think there's an elemental understanding of the universe there, but not quite an expanded one that we're hoping to move into. Um, What this passage says is that the man at the beautiful gate is there for our benefit. I, I want you just to feel that for a second and understand what's being presented and then also when you might have felt that in your own life. There's actually a very good core here, which says that in Judaism, which we then take up within Christianity, there is an obligation to those who are vulnerable, that there is a communal obligation to one another. And so if you see a brother or sister in need and you walk by them, that's a problem. And so you're instructed to stop and give care. All of that is good. The prophets talk about taking care of widows, orphans, and uh, folks who are from another country, another land, who are sojourning in yours. These are the ones who may not have access to certain kinds of communal stability. All of that is good until those people become utilities for your own advancement in the like rankings of heaven. Like I just, on the way to church, I happened to give $5 to someone asking for money. I don't know if you gave that much, but I gave five, so I'm going to right here. And then somebody else comes along and they, they gave 15 and a high five. So they get to go right here. And then someone else gave a gospel tract and made the person pray the prayer of salvation. And so they get to go here, even though they annoyed everybody. And right, that's how this thing goes. You sort of start to create a new kind of spiritual hierarchy. Around two, three hundred years after Jesus... The early church is forming, like the 300s. Uh, there comes a person named uh, Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage, and he decides to add some thoughts to this idea of almsgiving. There is this problem in the early church. This is a problem that we still carry with us now, which is that we need more money to do things. <laughs> uh, they were always concerned about what they would have called like the common plate of the sanctuary or of the synagogue. And so Cyprian, who's the bishop of Carthage, decides, you know what, there are a lot of really rich Romans. And those Romans who are rich, they have this practice called patronage. And patronage is the way that wealthy people make sure that you know that they're wealthy. And the way that they show that is by giving their wealth away. And it's not given away so that you're better off. It's given away so that you know that they're right here or that they're right here, right here. It pushes them up on the social order. This is like an honor and shame sort of thing. This Patronage is the way that wealth gets displayed and it has all kinds of strange connotations with societal stratification. But the bishop of Carthage needs money for the work of the church. And so he writes about almsgiving as a way to convince these rich Romans to give their wealth inside the church. Listen. 
The world's going to give you honor, he says. But what if you gave here? Then God's also going to give you honor. You just, you don't have to change who you are or how you live. You can be big. You can be important. You just need to be big and important in the church. Now, Cyprian gives us a lot of really good things, and he's a saint of the church, so don't tell him I said this. Uh, but part of what is being perpetuated is this understanding of giving, of sharing uh, with your own spiritual benefit. It sees those in need as tools for your own spiritual advance. And I don't think that's how Jesus is asking us to see the world. What's being presented in this understanding of almsgiving and patronage is not a person but it's something more like this. Someone you can act against, even in good, as a way to prove your righteousness. Now, I need to say like a hundred times today, I very much advocate for you sharing in your financial gifts with the congregation. Uh, that's not what this story is about, but it is the reasons for it or the intention behind it. To turn people into utility. Martin Buber talks about this, this idea of turning relationships into objects. Part of what is happening in this story with Peter and John is what's been happening in the Jesus story for quite a while. It's this overturning of the old social order. So in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, you remember the Sermon on the Mount? We preached on it for quite a while. There is this part where Jesus talks about almsgiving. And what does he say to do? Somebody. Yeah, to give in secret so that your father in heaven sees and gives you a reward. But again, the point of that is to not show it off. Because showing it off is the point in the society around them. Often Jesus will heal and he'll say, like, go and don't tell anybody. And that's confusing at first. But Jesus is trying to open people's eyes and in the Jesus project is turning the world upside down, including the social order. This gets picked up in religion during Jesus's time. There's a story of the widow who brings a small bit of coin to the offering. Do you remember this story? It's known as like the widow's mite. And she gives this little bitty bit and other people are like throwing all kinds of wads of money in the offering plate. And the story says that like she is seen as righteous. And this gets to be told as a story of giving a little bit or a lot. But that's actually not what the story's about. What the story's about is condemning the temple system and the way that it has absorbed this hierarchy of economy. It places the widows down here because they don't have anything to give and even takes the little bit that they have. Because right before that, Jesus says to the religious leaders, you devour widows' households. This whole thing is being turned upside down. So, Martin Buber comes along and he writes a book. Let's go back one more, Jason, to the tree. Martin Buber writes a book that uh, it's dense to read because it was written in German and translated. Uh, but if you would, I recommend it called I and Thou. I and Thou, anybody? I'm looking over here at Grant and Mandy because this is definitely going to be something you might would read in psychology. Uh, Buber talks about two different ways to be in the world. That most of us live in a world of I-it relationships. I'm me, 
And when I encounter you, I don't encounter you as a person in relationship. I encounter you as an object for something that might advance me. Now, this is like, this is L.A. to me. I've only been here two years, but everyone is utility because everyone is moving and advancing. Uh, we've had this conversation before, Perlman, in the music industry, right? There's Everybody's an it to kind of push you up. And then if you need to, you can step on their shoulders or you can push off their head and anything you need to get up a level on the ladder. Buber says this is most of the way that we understand the world. Uh, talks about a tree. He says this isn't even just true of human-to-human relationships. The way we see and encounter everything is I, it. That You see a tree. When you see the tree, you might notice it for the shade that it provides. You might notice it for the molecular composition of the tree or the way that you can gather its branches that have fallen to make a fire. Or if you cut it down, you can use those various parts to build a home. Or the way that certain fruit might fall from the tree and, and feed you. There are all of these relationships with the tree that are, at their core, utility. That is like the basic way to understand the world. But Buber says what the tree is really inviting us into is something of a relationship. Where it has a sense of presence in the world. And when you encounter it, you are changed by the encounter. The tree is an entire entity. And you encounter it as a thou. You enter into some kind of conversation with it. When the prophets talk about the world to come, our understanding of the end of the ages, what we might call heaven or eternal life, one of the things they talk about are the trees singing or clapping their hands. This understanding that the trees have a part to play in creation. That is an I-thou understanding of the world. The story from Acts 3 is about taking this man who is seen as a means to other people's spiritual advancement. Give him some alms on your way to the temple and you'll have a little bit of a leg up in this kingdom of God. The disciples ask over and over again, who's going to be greatest in the kingdom when it arrives, Jesus? That's the understanding you always are trying to advance. But Peter and John, they take the man out of the equation. When the crowds look with astonishment whenever he stands and walks and is healed and moves into the sanctuary, I'm not so sure that's just good news astonishment. Part of what I bet they're feeling is a sense of loss. There's one less way to advance in God's eyes. Because no longer is this man seen as their utility, but is seen as their companion. And if you don't yet have an understanding that is the kingdom of God expanding into the world, then that feels like your own world is closing down. If your religion relies on there being outsiders to make sure that you understand that you are an insider, then what Jesus is doing and what the Spirit is doing in the book of Acts is going to break us apart for our own healing. This is the word that we want to talk about today. It shows up in Acts 3. I'll show you where. It says, and Peter and John saw, no, no, verse 3, and when he saw Peter and John go about the temple, he asked them for alms. There it is, the old relationship at play. But verse 4, Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. Lifting the head and encountering this person as a person as a possibility for relationship. And the word for look intently is this word right here, ah, teno. And this is a 
beautiful word. I'm going to show it to you with some beautiful pictures. Uh, the word itself is two words. The right side means to stretch out, teno, to reach out as though to hold. And then the ah in front of it is this word that means to like bring into union. The gaze of Peter and John is one of offered and received relationship. Their eyes, their souls, their beings reach out to this person who's used to doing this and then letting people move on and is invited to do this and see them. It is a look of invitation. It is the way that Peter and John feel as though Jesus has looked at them. And in Jesus looking at them, understands that God has looked at them in that way. When we offer the benediction at the end of the service each week, the language is, well, you know it by now. May the Lord bless you in keeping me. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. May the Lord be gracious to you. Lift his smile upon you. That is an invitation to be seen by God. And in being seen by God, to be invited into a relationship. This is what Peter and John do for this man. They see him into the community. This is, I believe, actually the moment of healing. Not simply when he stands and walks, but when he is seen as a full person. As belonging to God's people. Uh, I asked Pastor Lindsay, who's on maternity leave, if I could show some of her uh the pictures that we took of her and Gavin for their maternity pictures uh, today. And so it was, I don't know, how long ago, Corey? Two months? Um, we went and took pictures of them all through the church. And I am by no means like a professional at this, but I love taking pictures. And so they asked if we would. It's not hard to take their picture because um, this is like the whole session is this kind of look between the two of them. They're like super into each other. They have this really good kind of solid foundation. And if you look at these pictures, the way that they look at one another says something about the way that they are together, speaks of their relationship. And you can see in the way that like Lindsay is looking at Gavin here, that to me is that to to gaze upon, to look intently. I'll show you one of Gavin doing the same. Right, just like all of the pictures Are the two of them seeing each other in this way? There's something about like moving through this city that feels like you want to keep your eyes down because you don't know if the gaze that you're going to encounter is going to be one of welcome or one of antagonism. It's like you don't make eye contact when you're on the 210 for the same reasons. But we really crave this. We crave to be seen and to see one another in our full selves. And in that, to somehow feel this kind of union. I did one more where they're looking at each other here. Um, But this is what I believe is happening in this kind of sacred seeing. It's like, if you can see, two hands reaching out and and grasping. Get past the creepiness of eyes with hands growing out of them. (laughs) This invitation to see and to be seen. 
when they encounter this man sitting at the gate beautiful, they see him like Jesus sees the world. There is this question that's arisen in uh, like evolutionary biology, why we are the way we are, of why we see in color. Not every animal sees in color, but we have what's called like a trichromal vision, I believe. Basically, we can see in three distinct colors, and that's what puts together our rainbow of sight. There are some shrimp that have like a, way more cones than that, and they can see colors that we don't even understand exist in the world. But we can see in this array. And for a long time, it was thought the reason that we can see in color is because fruit is like really bright, and you've got to be able to find the food. That the reason we have uh, colored vision is for our own survival. Uh, you know, red apples over there. That's where I want to go. So I'm, I'm that way. Sort of this, this evolutionary understanding. It turns out, though, from new research, that the reason that we can see in color is because it helps us read the faces of our neighbor. We are really good at noticing small shifts in tone in skin. If you watch... Like, pay attention to... The, well, it's really hard to pay attention to yourself paying attention. That's very meta. Uh, but when we look at a face, we don't just simply look. We have a pattern that we look. We do eye, eye, nose, mouth. We have this circle. If you're allowed to gaze at someone long enough, you look and see all of them. And it's incredibly important for a communal species like humans to be able to connect with our sight. The reason we can see in color is because we belong together. We are meant to read each other's emotional insides. It happens to be that we show it on our face. We are literally built in the way that we apprehend the world for relationship. What is the first thing that those primal humans do in the garden when they trip and fall? They hide. They don't want to be seen. I've grown up for so long in church, and a lot of it has felt the same. And there are the same kind of trips and traps and pitfalls along the way. And often what we're doing on Sundays here with our teaching and the invitation we are offering is to see the world differently than the way we might have grown up with it, even if you grew up in church. A lot of what we were told is the point of religion is this sense of getting our individual selves into heaven. And so if that's the goal, then the man at the gate called beautiful, like the last thing you want to do is heal him. What you want to do is keep using him to get into heaven. This understanding that everything about creation is for your utility to get across the finish line. It makes the world an incredibly dangerous and incredibly profane desecrated place but god's intention for creation is our mutuality the first thing that god says is it is not good that we are alone so creates us in relationship and our movement away from god and away from one another is understood as the fall away from that primal belonging the book of acts is one long exercise is in reorienting our gaze back into this world The first chapter of the book has these disciples watching Jesus ascend. And in his ascent, it says that they are standing there and they are gazing up into the heavens. 
Man, if that's not what church feels like sometimes, right? Just like staring up, waiting for Jesus to do something or, or to be discovered. And these angels, these messengers come down out of the clouds and they say to these disciples, like, why are you staring at the clouds? And so then Peter and John, just a couple of chapters later, look down. They look at this world and they see it like Jesus sees it. And it expands their understanding. A little bit later, Peter's going to have this other vision where all of this food is on offer in this dream. All the food he's not supposed to have. The food that is out of bounds for his people. And this voice comes and says, like, take and eat. It says that he looks intently on it. It's the same kind of vision. And a little bit later, when he tells this story to some of his friends, he says that in God there is no longer any distinction. The book of Acts is rescuing the vision of God's people so that they would see the world as God sees it. It turns out that our salvation is all wrapped up together. Turns out that we are meant to help each other along the way. This expansiveness of God's good news, it takes new eyes to see. Over and over again, even in like this church is 130 years old and we've done the reading in the backlogs of our history. Over and over again, we have invited one another into an expansive understanding of what God is doing in this world. At one point in time, it was like his church here just for uh, just for like white Europeans who happen to settle here. We had that conversation in the late 1800s. At some other point, it was like, is it just for white citizens of this country or is it also for the folks who live in the northern part of Pasadena? All of the conversations that were happening on race and then this church tried to expand their vision and their understanding of who is part of God's people. There are other times where there have been questions about like, well, men seem to be the more dominant gender of men and women, but Paul talks about there's neither male nor female in Christ. So what if... What if we all could serve and lead? We had that conversation and our vision expanded. There are going to be times when God asks us to see more than we thought was possible. Belonging that we couldn't even imagine. Gretchen, where you at, Gretchen? Uh, what was this weekend for you? Yeah, Gretchen graduated from Fuller. I thought about my own graduation a few years back as I was thinking about you this week and we were praying for you. And at our ceremony, we were given, uh, we were given this cross. And they, they had made the stained glass, uh, windows at Duke Divinity's, uh, Goodson Chapel. And they had gotten a bunch of extra pieces of glass from all of the different colors. And so they would use them and they'd cut them into crosses and give each graduating class a different color. And so ours was this clear one. And, um, they told us, you know, in this kind of charge, and I'd be curious, Gretchen, what you might have heard yesterday and what you'll carry forward in your own time. But one of the things that I've carried forward is this message that they gave us, um, which is the one I want to give to you today. The goal of the Christian life is not simply to see God or to see Christ. It is to see the world through Christ. When we start to just simply focus our vision on the heavens, we no longer can see God's good creation. It limits our attention. 
So they handed us these crosses and they say that it's going to be at times tempting to just stare at your religion. But this is never meant to be the end. It was always meant to be the means. This is what you look through to see the world as it truly is. You are given something that we might call like the beatific vision, beautiful eyes that look out upon creation. And in seeing it in its blessedness and in its potential, to come back into conversation and belonging with God, you might help the world get there. To imagine, as on earth, so in heaven, that connection point. This was what was given to us. The statement that I've carried with me this week is that Christ is not simply the light that we see, but Christ is the light by which we see everything else. Light is that which illuminates the world. This is like the most basic understanding of photography. It's just simply the capturing of light. What Peter and John are able to do is see Christ in unexpected places. Is see the divine at work. The life that is in them. What we would call the spirit is so strong, is so potent, that when it encounters stories of death, stories of exclusion, stories of who doesn't belong. It simply takes them and pulls them into God's bigger story. It happens over and over in the book of Acts. It is very hard to understand until our eyes are healed. Last week, when we first started this focus, we took some breaths together. And when we did... We believed with everything we had to believe that in that moment, God's spirit was present here, inviting a bigger vision of the world. It takes training, though, to see as Christ sees. It takes the gift of God's spirit for Peter and John to see this man back into belonging. And we are not always good at this. In fact, the ways that a lot of us live our lives now by virtue of living in this kind of media-soaked landscape is that our attention is hijacked and then funneled in ways that are dangerous. That we are asked to see one another as enemies, as those who don't belong, don't deserve to be reached out toward in union. This is what all of 24-Hour News is for. You're going to have to practice Seeing the world as God sees it. Seeing one another as God sees them. As children. As home. As part of the family. It reminds me of those walks that the author took with those experts. To walk with Christ is to walk with someone whose eyes are pure. And who can see the world back into wholeness. And I don't know where your vision is clouded. I know where mine is. And I have people in my life who will tell me when I'm seeing things wrong. But practice. Walk this block and practice. See what it feels like to notice our friends in Centennial Place across the street who've come off the streets and are working through addictions and through very difficult circumstances and see them as part of your community. Part of God's family already. 
see that relative you just can't stand, right? Surely God doesn't love them because they surely don't love God. Try to imagine that not an enemy. At the center of our faith is a cross. And the later part of the New Testament grapples with the cross being at the center of our faith because it is such a moment of shame. And yet what we were asked to see there is the power of God at work. Y'all, Acts is going to turn everything upside down and inside out if we let it. So one more time, I'm going to ask you, close your eyes. If you're back in the back getting a massage, this will be easier for you to relax. But to take a breath. And as you breathe in, feel God's spirit here now. Inviting you to see the world differently. Now as you breathe out, there are prejudices you have carried into this space Latent racisms and enemies that you have a hard time naming sometimes, but you can feel it. Who you hope doesn't belong. Just let it go for now. And I ask you to breathe in again. And as you do, to hold that line from Peter that in God there are no distinctions. As you breathe out, I want you to let go of all the things you think hold you back from stepping into God's space. That have you feeling completely helpless at the gate called beautiful. And I ask you to keep this breathing that's deep in with God's spirit and out with all the animosity we carry. And I'm going to pray for us. God, in this breathing, in this space, you are present. And whether we believe it or not, your presence is changing everything. It's changing who we are, how we see this world. So forgive our partial vision. Forgive the blinders that we carry, the ones we inherited from our families and from our friends, from the town we grew up in, the ones we've built up over time to keep ourselves safe. Forgive us for trying to solve fear by pushing people away. And forgive us for trying to earn our salvation off the backs of other people. God, as we breathe in, We want to receive the gift of belonging. That all of creation is being healed because you see it back into wholeness. We want to believe that that gaze falls on us. Not in condemnation, but in kindness. In chesed, in covenant love. And in safety. And so with boldness, we will step forward into this world, afraid of nothing save the fear of you. Give us eyes to see the places that you are present even now.
Hear our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.